Not gonna lie, it is. It's emotional for me to be back here with you guys. I might have to just get this out. It's good to be back at Midlands Church. This is where Julie and I got married and started our life together and grew so much. So I am glad to be back to share the word of the Lord with you guys today. So let me pray and then we will dive in together. Father, give me strength to speak, just to form words. And by your Holy Spirit, would you encourage your people this morning? Would you give us a vision of your son through Paul writing to Timothy that would capture our hearts and take us away from the temptations that threaten to bring us down into the pit of hell? Would you guard our hearts and guard our faith? Keep us in your hands. Do not let us go. And do all of this through us being attentive to your word this morning, us listening with faith and humility, seeking from your son something to hold on to, something to hope and something to look forward to with joy. So, Father, we, we need you. We need you to do that this morning. So would you bless our time in your word together? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Matt preached on wisdom and contentment about a month ago, a little little over a month ago, um, that I listened to this past week. And we're going to talk about a similar theme. We're going to talk about godliness and contentment from 1 Timothy 6. And we're going to hit on some similar themes. But the goal of this sermon, particularly, is to encourage us away from the things that are tempting from, to us and toward the treasure that will actually satisfy us, away from what will bring us death and toward Jesus who will actually bring us life, which is an appropriate theme to focus on at the beginning of a new year, to recalibrate our hearts, to recalibrate our eyes as we start off this year. So here's where we're going this morning. First, we're going to overview the passage that Matt read for us. I'm just going to look at the structure, overview that, and then I'm going to give you a one-sentence summary of what the main point is. And we're going to read that, and then we're going to go through three questions, one, through, one from each of the sections of the passage that either support or explain the main point to give us bolsters, to give us... Um, structure and foundation underneath that main point to return to and to fight the fight of faith with. So if you brought a Bible with you this morning, please have it open to 1 Timothy 6. I'll I'll read a couple other passages, but be following along. We're going to focus on specific words, and, and my prayer, my hope in preaching is that what I say is not received as what I say, but that anything that I say you see as an argument in the passage, that anything, any claim I make or any assertion or any hope that I try and give you, that you see how Paul has organized it in that way in the text so that you can go back to that text, you can go back to this passage and fight for faith again instead of remembering what someone said on Sunday morning. So let's divide the passage up first. We have three sections. First section is verses three to five. The second section is verses six through eight. And the last section is the last two verses, verses 9 and 10. 
So the first and third section are focusing on the same group of people. They're, they're Paul's negative example that he's holding up to Timothy and he's trying to explain this to Timothy. And what's in the middle is Paul's alternative for us as believers. So let's first look at verses 3 to 5. These verses describe people who teach false things about Jesus, but Paul doesn't just stop there, nor does he just give how Timothy should respond to these people. He, he wants Timothy... He wants us to understand what's underneath that false teaching. Where is it coming from? Why is it happening? What leads to that? So, verse 4. They're conceited, and they don't truly understand what they're talking about. They cause quarrels and friction wherever they are. In other words, these unhealthy cravings erode the foundation of any positive, trusting, healthy, loving relationship. These people in verses 3 to 5 are depraved in mind, verse 5, deprived of the truth, and third, they imagine that godliness is a means of gain. And that third one is where Paul was going to focus in on and where we're going to spend most of our time this morning. Godliness in 1 Timothy focuses on one's being a Christian. It describes to one's devotion to Christ that results in obedience to Christ and growth in the fruit of the Spirit. So to be godly is to be like Christ in your life, in your living, because under that you love Christ. It's not just a moral standard. It's born out of a love and devotion to Christ. So verse 3 to 5 describe people who think that to be a Christian is a means for their worldly gain. Paul picks up on this phrase, moving to the second section, verse 6, right? He uses that same phrase. He picks up on this phrase, imagining that godliness is a means of gain, and he offers an alternative point of view, correcting that false conception of those he just described. Rather than godliness being a means of worldly gain, godliness with contentment, a certain kind of godliness, is great gain. So he gives a reason for this in verse 7, right? 4. He gives a reason for this, and then he gives an inference. So first, godliness with contentment is great gain because we brought nothing into the world, and we're not going to take anything out of it. And then he says, and because of that, verse 8, we're going to be content with what we actually need, what we, what we have, food, clothing, the necessities that we need to live. In verses 9 and 10, then, the last section, Paul returns to the subject of those who think godliness is a means of gain. They aren't content with food and clothing. They desire to be rich. They think godliness is a means of getting to where they want to be in life. Rather than finding contentment in those riches, though, there's a surprising result for them. They're deprived not only of truth, but of contentment. They they don't find what they want. They ultimately fall into ruin and destruction, and they pierce themselves with many pangs, moving away from the faith moving away from the faith into eternal damnation. So, here's the point. Here's the main point. This is one sentence. I'll read it twice. And then we'll look at these three questions. True godliness, that's the point of this passage, true godliness which finds its contentment not in earthly things, but in Christ is a means of the greatest gain, namely God, while counterfeit godliness, which seeks its contentment in worldly things, is ultimately robbed of all satisfaction. So, 
This passage in 1 Timothy says, true godliness finds its contentment not in earthly things, but in Christ. That godliness is a means of the greatest gain, namely God. While false godliness, which finds its contentment in this world, is ultimately robbed of all satisfaction. So, question one of three. Let's look at verses three to five first. And we're going to ask this question. What is the connection between them imagining that godliness is a means to gain at the end of verse 5, what's the connection between that and the rest of verses 3 to 5? All of these indictments, all of these criticisms, all of this explanation of who these people are, why does he end with, and they imagine that godliness is a means of gain? Let's first look at verse 3. Okay, As well as teaching a different doctrine, right? if someone teaches a different doctrine, they also... They also do not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with true godliness. That word agree is an interesting word. It's used all over the New Testament for one person approaching another physically, coming to another person, seeking something else. Like the Sermon on the Mount is introduced, Matthew 5, 1, with this sentence. Seeing the crowd, Jesus went up onto the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Came is, is that same word as in 1 Timothy, it's translated agree. So here the disciples are coming to Jesus to sit at his feet and hear his teaching. Outside of the Gospels and Acts, it's only used in three books. Hebrews, 1 Peter, and 1 Timothy. Listen to how it's used in Hebrews 4.16. Let us then, with confidence, this is the word, Draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. Or, again in Hebrews 10.22, let us draw near, our word again, with a true heart in full assurance of faith. So, we see that this word is used often of movement towards something, many times towards a person you're seeking something from in humility. And Paul's using it metaphorically here in 1 Timothy for people who hear these words of our Lord Jesus Christ and don't move towards it. They don't move towards it. Not only do they not agree with sound doctrine, they reject it. They move away from sound words. They, they back away from them because they're distasteful. They don't, they don't like the content of this teaching about Jesus. They don't see Jesus as a Savior worth loving or a Lord worth following or a God worth worshiping. So what are these words? What, what, what are the sound words that Paul says these teachers, these, these Christians, self-professing Christians, what are these words that they find distasteful, that they move away from? Throughout this letter, throughout 1 Timothy, and you've probably heard this phrase before, right? This, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, right? That word saying is the same word for words, right? It can be used as kind of like a this, this word and then give a sentence and it's a memorable sentence. And, and Paul uses that as an organizing device throughout the letter. Here's the first saying or the first sound word. 1 Timothy 1.15. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, 
as the foremost, Jesus Christ might, might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. So these false teachers hear that and reject that word about Jesus Christ because that saying sees Jesus as a supremely glorious Savior who came to save supremely sinful men. That puts men in their place as needing to be saved and Jesus in his place as being exalted as the perfect Savior. And and they don't want to be in that position. They don't want to be humbled, needy, needing the grace of Christ. This makes sense when we look at verse 4. What is Paul's first criticism of these people? They're puffed up with conceit. They're they're prideful. They crave for quarrels so that they can be proven right. They're suspicious of anyone who doesn't puff up their ego. Their mind is depraved. They're empty of truth because they've completely misunderstood godliness. They've completely misunderstood what it is to come and to be a Christian, to come to Jesus. They think that the goal of their existence, rather, is to gain for themselves. Let's skip down to verse 9 now. Right? Same, same focus, Paul, Paul's returning to talking about these people in verses 9 and 10. And let's ask our second question. What's the result of those desires? What's the result of viewing your life that way? Paul established in these first three verses that the false teachers love themselves rather than God. And now in verses 9 and 10... He generalizes that root, that heart root, to all Christians. He starts talking about more general terms, not just teachers, but those who desire to be rich. So that, that word at the beginning of verse 10, if you look, that word for, that tells us verse 10 explains verse 9 in some way. And so we have verse 9 and 10 giving us this. Those who desire to be rich, in verse 9, are plunged into ruin and destruction through many senseless and harmful desires because, verse 10, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Now, the love of money shouldn't just be thought to be, I love green bills, or I love numbers on a computer screen when I check my bank balance. We don't love money because of how it smells or how it looks. We love money because of what it gets us. And it doesn't just get us things. We love money because it gets us the comfort of the American dream, the respect of those who surround us, the power of authority, the ability to not have to worry. We don't have to have anxiety because we have enough money. We love lacking need. We love having everything that we could want. We love feeling safe and self-sufficient. We don't want to feel needy. But do we hear what Paul calls these desires? Look at verse 9. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires. Any desire that motivates us to move away from seeing Christ as supremely satisfying is senseless. It's illogical. It's absurd. It is stupid to think that these things will satisfy us. And even worse than that, they're false. 
They're, they're deceptive. They're lying desires. We see each other's cars and houses and things and families and situations and life stories, even testimonies. Remember envy in verse 4. And our sinful desires tell us, well, Christian, look how happy you would be if you had that. Look how much easier life would be. Look how much more fun you would have, how much more comfortable you would be. Look how novel and interesting and convenient that is. But if we think carefully in the moment, we know that those desires don't deliver what they're promising in the moment. They they can't. None of these things can satisfy us in the way that in the moment our sin is telling us it will. They're posing as demigods, pretending to be satisfying for the moment that they're being presented to you. But only God is able to satisfy us in that way. These desires aren't only senseless and and illogical and and empty of understanding. They're, They're deadly. So Paul is describing this type of person. In verses 3 to 5 and 9 to 10. This is, this is our negative example that Paul wants so dearly to warn us against. People who want money, respect, power, authority, comfort, and control in this life. They seek the good life now. And Christianity has become a means to that end for them. They aren't attracted by a vision of Christ as the supreme treasure of the universe because he isn't valuable to them unless he gives them really what their heart wants at that moment. Christ isn't the treasure of their lives. They are. They are their greatest treasure. The good news is that Paul offers us an alternative. The whole purpose of the Bible, the gospel, is to point to this alternative. Apart from the gospel, that negative portrait is who we are. That is where our hearts live, always wanting the next thing, always being afraid that we're not going to have enough, always, always having a vision of what our life could be and wishing that we were right there. But Paul gives us something f- so much better. He says in verse 6, Godliness with contentment is great gain. Now this is, this is wordplay of verse 5, right? These these words that are being connected. Those who are mistaken think that godliness is a means to gain, meaning they think that being a Christian is a means to get them what they want in this world, even if that's just in the church with everyone around you respecting you. Even if if that's just being a Christian, well-respected in the community, having a job that will provide for your family in a way that you don't have to be anxious anymore. You don't have to trust God because you have what you need. To put it another way, This is Paul's alternative. We truly gain, only gain, by pursuing contentment in God rather than contentment in things. So let's look at three words. This is our last section here. Let's look at three words in this section to put some meat on Paul's hope for us as we hope in God. We'll look at godliness, contentment, and gain. Okay, first, godliness, right? This is what what we're after. What does he mean by godliness with contentment? Let's look at godliness first. This word is used twice as much in this letter as any other book in the New Testament. So this this is Paul's concern. This is his burden in this letter is, Timothy, I want you to understand godliness. And if we go back to chapter 2, 
The first time that Paul mentions godliness, he mentions that he wants Christians to live a godly and quiet life because it's pleasing to God, the God who wants everyone to be saved. So godliness in 1 Timothy is that manner of lifestyle that a Christian should live that shows those around you that God, that God is the great giver, that God is the great supplier. When we live in a godly way, God is seen as more precious than life. We show by our actions that Christ is valuable by, by doing this, by counting him more desirable than respect, comfort, riches, etc. In other words, our godly lives, as we live in this way, counting Christ as more valuable, our lives proclaim God's saving goodness to the world, which pleases God because he wants to be seen in the world as supremely satisfying, as the saving answer of the world. This isn't because the world sees how moral we are. It's because godliness and contentment go together, like we see in verse 6. So Paul uses this word contentment in verse 6. Godliness with contentment. This word is really rare. If you look it up in a concordance, this word occurs a handful of times, but in extremely significant passages like this one. One is 2 Corinthians 9, 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, Christian, so that having all sufficiency, this word for contentment, sufficiency, having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Or a book that might have come to your mind already, a passage in Philippians 4, 11 and 13. Not that I am speaking, this is Paul again, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. How? Why? I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So contentment for Paul is not when we finally have enough that we can call it quits. Matt made the point so clearly from Proverbs, contentment is always a little bit more for us. What, what enough is always the next step in our lives, is always the next situation that we can find ourselves in. That's not contentment for Paul. Contentment is not that we're finally self-sufficient, but that Christ is sufficient for us. That we see Christ as being enough. We're not self-sufficient. We are Christ-sufficient because he's given us all grace and strength. We don't need anything else. We don't need anything else than food and clothing, what we need to survive every day. If that's all we have, Christ is sufficient for us. Christ gives sufficient grace to enable Christ-centered lives that illustrate Christ's satisfying goodness to the world around us. So let's put them together. Godliness and contentment. Godliness with contentment, then, is godliness that is proven to be true, not false, because we find our satisfaction in Christ, because we don't always want something else. Our godliness communicates God's worth to the world because you don't need anything else to be joyful, to be happy, to be content, to be faithful, to say, to say no to temptation, to fight the fight of faith. We don't need anything else than Christ. Our last word is the word for gain. This word only occurs twice in the New Testament. And it's in these two verses. 
In verse 5, this word for gain, right? It, it's actually translated, that, that whole phrase, a means of gain. That's how the ESV translates this word. And they imagine that godliness is a means of gain. It's a means of making a living. It's a means of getting what we want. Paul uses the same word in verse 6. But the way the ESV translates it, they only translate it gain rather than means of gain. And it's because the way translating it that way is is a little awkward. But when we translate it in verse 6, but we know that godliness with contentment is a means of great gain, it helps us clarify what Paul is saying. The godliness in verse 5 ends in wandering away from the faith. Those who seek gain this way don't find it. Their godliness is counterfeit. Then what is the great gain that godliness, true godliness with contentment is a mean to? If it's a, if it's a means to great gain, and Paul is playing this word off of each other, what is, the, what is the great gain that we get from true godliness, godliness with contentment? It's not the food and clothing in verse 8. We die and leave our food and clothing here. That's not what we gain. We gain Christ. We gain God. Paul says in Philippians 1.21 through 23, this is a familiar passage. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Okay, but I'm saying Christ is the gain, right? So why is Paul saying dying is gain? Here's why. If This is Paul. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose to live or to die, I can't tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart, to die, and to be with Christ, for that is far better. Paul saw even dying and not being able to do the ministry that he hoped to do because it meant that he would have Christ in his fullness. That was far better. That was gain. That was sufficient to get him through prison, never fearing that God would leave him never defending his reputation while he was in prison. So knowing and loving Christ is the gain that for Christians can be all satisfying. But here's the amazing thing. If we pursue this godliness, godliness with contentment, that results in us gaining Christ, we actually end up gaining everything else as well. We we don't lose out. There's a few places that we see that. Matthew 5, 5, right? Beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. I don't don't think about this often. Blessed are the meek, the humble, the the ones who wait for God to be their victor. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. (laughs) They're meek right now. They don't have the earth, but one day when Christ comes back, they will inherit the whole earth. It will be theirs. Or Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So godliness with contentment, meaning godliness that is content to not be rich now because we're satisfied in who God is, this godliness is the means through which Christians will gain everything. We will have God, We will have everything that he created. He created it to be enjoyed by those who receive it with thanksgiving, and we will do that forever. But if we seek those other things now, we don't have God or those things. So Jesus sums it up well 
in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6.33. So, Christian, this is what Jesus says. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Don't worry about them. So here's where we land. True godliness, the godliness that we want to grow in in 2017, that godliness is shown by us striving for contentment. It's, it's not a, okay, well, if I'm not content right now, I'm not a Christian. Godliness and contentment and sanctification are progressive realities day by day. We strive to find continual delight in God rather than the things around us. The application of this text, hear me, is not don't be rich. The application of what Paul says here is not it is wrong to have money and to have things. It's fight to not want those things more than you want God. Because if you do, you won't get God. So Christian, hear what Paul says in the next two verses after our passage. As for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness and godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. So, Christians, fight the good fight of faith this year. Fight, what does that mean? Fight to be satisfied in God. Flee anything that draws your eyes away from God. Be shrewd, be careful, be a miser with yourself in dealing with your sin. Don't excuse your sin and let it put roots down into your heart. There's no shortage of things to fight with. There's no shortage of ammunition for this fight. God adopts us. He lavishes us with love every morning that we wake up and take a breath. He understands that we're weak. He's patient with us through our failure. He is glorious in grace. He is majestic in mercy. He is rich in love. All of these things are bullets for your gun to fight against the lust and the greed and the discontentment that seep in and strangle our hearts. Fight this fight daily. Fight to find satisfaction in God, guys. Fight against the lying desires. Strive to catch yourself. Be aware of what is going on in your heart. Say to yourself, self, you don't need that thing. You don't need that situation. You don't need that outcome. You don't need that response. Jesus, the Son of God, the creator of the universe, gave himself for you that you would find joy in him. Fight, speak to yourself, preach the gospel to yourself when you feel and hear those desires. And now we get to celebrate this gospel. We get to celebrate this God and the Savior through the supper that Christ left for us. We fight the good fight of faith, truly. We fight the good fight of faith every time we take this bread and drink this cup. 
To take this bread and drink this cup means that we are looking to Jesus and saying, your body and your blood are enough for me right now and every moment from here on out. This meal proclaims that our treasure is the God-man who gave that body and blood. So when we eat, we say, Jesus, who came for me, he came for me while I was still a sinner. He's coming back. He died for me and he is coming back and I can be content now because I'm waiting for his return. He's coming back for his people. So this morning, if Jesus is not that treasure for you, if he is not your contentment, watch us as we take that meal. Watch us as we proclaim our contentment with that Christ. It's not a meal for you right now, but it could be. It could be if you would see Jesus as valuable. He came that anyone who sees him as the treasure and believes in him would be saved, would have forgiveness, would, would know what full joy is. That Jesus is a treasure to be desired and a God to be worshipped. So let me pray and then we'll take the meal together. God, you are far above what we can see with our fallen eyes and darkened hearts. You are so much greater, so much more satisfying, so much more glorious than we can express with our words or comprehend with our mind. And yet you came down as a man that we would know you that we would be reconciled with you through breaking your son's body and spilling his blood. So grant us continual faith, continual satisfaction, continual power in the gospel to continue striving and fighting and putting to death the deeds of the flesh that we might live when your son returns. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.